Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of all the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descendant from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by the one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Lord, we pray that you would give us insight and clarity in a passage like this that has a lot that we're not familiar with culturally or even sometimes theologically speaking. But Lord, we know that this is important to us because it points us to you, to your character, to your ministry, to your work, and ultimately to our salvation. So we ask God that you would help us through this, that you would by your spirit give us the understanding to lead and guide us through this text. In your name, amen. Amen. Some people wait for this kind of passage like they're they're waiting for the Melchizedek stuff to come up because they're always looking for the intricate little details of the scripture they're, they're always wanting to find out about you know the the details and the things that most of us just read over and we go bet you know past and beyond and you know especially when I had my own particular theological bent as a dispensationalist is I found myself regularly looking for all of these sweet little mystery nuggets throughout scripture right and you have to mine them you have to dig down deep and you find these little treasures in here and it's just Oh, it opens up this world of understanding. And I'm not saying that's not true. There's a lot of things in Scripture that are like that. Um, and Melchizedek is kind of like that. And as we go through this, I, I want you to see what kind of character I think Melchizedek, well, I think the Bible says Melchizedek actually is. I don't think he's as spooky and mystical as some people probably think that he is or have made him out to be. And oftentimes with texts like this, a really good reading of the texts that 
are in front of you and the texts that relate to it will really give you a lot of insight and clear up some misunderstanding that we might have. One of the misunderstandings, I don't think anybody here, but in our society and culture, we have Mormons that routinely come and knock on our doors. And they look very nice and everything, and part of their outfit, their very nice outfit that they have on is a little badge, and it says Elder Hootenanny or whatever, right? And that, that's telling you that they're an elder in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and that means that they have been baptized into the priesthood of Melchizedek, according to their church and their traditions, that they have a higher and better priesthood than any other priesthood that's out there, and that Joseph Smith, he got these promises to give them a re... Uh, what's the right way to say it? A reestablishing of the historic apostolic church. <clears throat> And part of that restoration was bringing the priesthood back in, this Melchizedekian priesthood, and that's what they are a part of. Well, first of all, right off the bat, I want to say, the Bible only says there's one priest after the order of Melchizedek, and it's not Elder Hootenanny knocking on my door. It's Jesus Christ himself. He is the one who is the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. But... Who is this character, Melchizedek? First thing, let's go back to Genesis 14. So grab your Bibles and flip back to Genesis there. Chapter 14. Let me set the scene while you're turning there. There's a group of kings in the north part of what will become eventually Israel. And... They're led by a guy whose name is kind of tricky, Chorlamander. He leads this group of ten armies, and he comes down and he conquers the region that Lot, Abraham's nephew, is living in. And the region consists of two main cities. We know them infamously as Sodom and Gomorrah because of what's going to come later on in Genesis. At this point, they're still... Not great cities. They're very bad, very sinful and wicked cities. But these kings come down and they conquer the area, the region of Sodom and Gomorrah, which was not uncommon. This happened regularly as you read through Genesis and you read through the Old Testament. You find lots of times groups of cities gather together and group up and go conquer other groups of city to either expand their territory or increase their their the stuff that they have or those kind of things. That's what's going on here. I don't think Abraham would have cared at all that this took place, except Chorlamander and his armies captured Lot, his family, all of his servants, and all of Lot's belongings. And Abraham, being kin to Lot felt compelled to go down and take care of that. In fact, if you remember back just a chapter before, their herds got too big for each other and Lot's herdsmen started fighting with Abraham's herdsmen because there were just too many uh, animals together. And so Abraham told Lot, which was very uncommon, he allowed his inferior, his nephew, to pick the best land where he wanted to go and settle. And Abraham would take the other part. It shows us his character is already, at that time, a character of grace and love and generosity. Lot chose 
to go down into the fertile plains of Jordan. They're not fertile anymore. If you've been to Israel or you've seen, if you've seen any pictures of Israel, the first one you're going to see is the Dome of the Rock where the temple used to be there in Jerusalem, right? But second or third, you're going to see a picture of either the Dead Sea or some guy floating in the Dead Sea reading a newspaper or something like that. Well, that area there is what we're talking about. That's the land that's here. Here in Genesis 14, it was fertile. It was beautiful. It was the best land that was there in that entire region. And that's why Lot went and settled there. He was willing to go and chance it with these corrupt, sinful rascals so that his, his flocks and his um, livestock could flourish, so that he could prosper. We know from the book of Second Peter that Lot's heart was grieved the whole time. He wasn't in there because of the sin, but he surrounded himself with sinful cities so that he could prosper and in doing that he was grieved by their wickedness all the time well he was conquered and captured with all of his stuff and Corlemander took it all away and they were racing back north and Abraham when he heard the news he got all of his servants together all of his family together armed them and chased them down captured them or overtook them I should say at the area that we would know today as Damascus. Defeated them in battle, ran them off, and then retook all of the property and possessions that belonged to the region of Sodom and Gomorrah, along with Lot and his whole family. Now, that's where we pick the story up, okay? So it's been an action-packed moment right up to this point. Fighting, battle, glory, victory, freedom for all of these people. It's just a huge party atmosphere, festive, we won kind of thing going on. So after the defeat, Genesis 14, verse 17. After the return and the defeat from Chorlamander and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought bread and wine. He was a priest of the Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take all of the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anar, Eshkol, and Maneri take their share. Now, First of all, in the mind of the Hebrew reader, they would have had all of this. We, if I were preaching Hebrews 
back then to those Hebrews, I wouldn't need to go back to Genesis 14 and reiterate that. Even though they have a history of doing that, right? Stephen there in Acts chapter 7, when he gets up and he's preaching to these people, he basically reiterates the entire history of Israel before he gets to the point that they're a bunch of villains who have killed all the prophets and killed Jesus himself. And then, of course, they went ahead and killed Stephen. But here, when we read this passage, we see that there are two kings, right? The first king, king of Sodom, is released by Abram after this victory. And if we jump down, we see that after a response, as you were, to Melchizedek's blessing upon Abram, the king of Sodom kind of wants in on that action and says, hey, you can have everything that you want. All of the stuff is yours. I'm just going to take the people back. And Abram, he says, nope, I swore an oath. I have lifted my hand to the Lord Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything of yours, lest you should say, I made Abram rich. God had promised Abram everything, right? Romans 14 says, or pardon me, Romans chapter 4 says the whole world. But when we read in Genesis chapter 12, it says, all of this land, this promised land is going to be yours, Abram. Now, this could have been an interesting way that Abram could have justified taking a bunch of stuff, taking even a bunch of land, and saying, hey, it's mine. God gave it to me. God gave me all of this land. I defeated these kings. He could have said to the king of Sodom, pack rocks, kid. This is my land now. Right? He would have had every right to do so. But he doesn't. He has a confidence and a faith in God that is so remarkable that even when, frankly, there would have been nobody who would have disagreed if he were to say, nope, this is my land now, and move into Sodom and Gomorrah and start ruling from there, nobody would have had a qualm with that. Nobody in that day, and I think if that's how history played out, nobody from then on would have had a qualm with that. But God had a qualm with that. And Abraham knew it, probably through prayer. So he swears, Lord, if this is the way this plays out and the king of Sodom tells me I can have everything, I will not take it because I don't want anybody to think that I got rich via the hands of some wicked individual. I want everyone to be able to look back and say, I got all of my possessions because God was favorable to me. And gave it to me. That's some remarkable faith, I have to admit. He didn't want to get back. He didn't want to, you know, any, he, he wasn't playing some game with him. He just literally didn't want anything that was his because he wanted his blessing to come from the Lord and not from another individual. And he received that blessing from the Lord, didn't he here? Seems so simple when you read through it. This guy comes down, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and he brings out bread and wine. Now, I like to think that that's foreshadowing. I don't know how it isn't, especially knowing the Hebrews text that we have in front of us. 
that this guy comes out and he brings of all things he could have brought to refresh and bless Abram, he brings out bread and wine, foreshadowing the body and blood of Christ being broken, foreshadowing the very communion we partake of every single Sunday as we gather together. Bread and wine. Simple, simple little staples in most of the world. Nothing ostentatious about them. And that's the blessing. The massive contrast here is that Abram had a choice of blessings, if you will. He could have had the blessing of all the stuff, literally all the stuff. But instead he chose the blessing of simple bread and simple wine from a man who loved Jesus too. From a man who loved the Lord too. Abram, for, for his faults, man, he, he was a humble guy. A humble guy who knew his place, who trusted the Lord more than I do. I can assure you of that. To take this blessing of bread and wine and not take the blessing of all of the money, all of the animals, all of the clothes, all of the stuff. Which is something that in our culture seems very counterintuitive. Why wouldn't you take the stuff too? Why not take them both? Why not have it all and get ahead? Well, Abram chose the higher road and chose the higher path and allowed his integrity to be intact. There's something important about character, folks. There's something important about having integrity and having a set of morals and then living by them and following through with them. Trying to teach them to our kids. Trying to live that way within the home. Trying to live that way when no one else is around. Trying to live that way when you are tempted with all kinds of things that certainly you're life would be better for but yet saying no this is what we're going to do because this is right and that wouldn't be right taking bread and wine instead of all of the riches and all of the glories of victory so this king of Salem King Melchizedek brings bread and wine the little parentheses there says he's also a priest of the most high now in scripture we don't find kingly priests very often in fact in the book of Isaiah we have the story of why can't I think of his name now off the top of my head had it earlier anyways king in Isaiah's day who it'll probably come at three in the morning (laughs) I'll wake up and I'll text you all (laughs) I think it was king Hezekiah now that I'm thinking about it if I'm wrong somebody will tell me I'm sure um He has this this glorious run as a king. But then at the end, he has this idea in his own mind where he's going to go into the temple and he's going to offer incense before the altar of God, before the mercy seat himself. And the priests try to stop him and tell him, don't do this thing. You're not a priest. You are a king. These are two separate orders for us to serve in and he says shut up get out of my way and marches on in there and he goes to offer sacrifice or offer these incense before the Lord and the Lord struck him with leprosy and that was the end of his days was in exile from his kingdom burdened with this disease of leprosy and he died tragically that way even after he had a good long run as king 
So we don't find king priests in scripture. In fact, we find a very rigid segregation of these two offices in scripture, don't we? So here to find a guy who is also a priest and a king and an acceptable priest before the God Most High is very, very, very unusual. He blessed him. And the blessing he gives to Abram is, is beautiful. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. What was he tempted with from the king of Sodom? All of the possessions. And what's the answer that Melchizedek gives him? God blesses you who possesses everything. Even those possesses that you're tempted, possessions that you're tempted with are the Lord's himself. It's all God's. He possesses everything. And God who possesses everything blesses you. That is greater than stuff. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now that's it. That's, that's the story of Melchizedek in the Old Testament. Now you'd think with a passage like we have in Hebrews that there'd be at least a whole chapter or two dedicated to this guy somewhere back here in Genesis, but there's just simply not. In fact, he doesn't show up again until Psalm 110. So flip to Psalm 110 with me real quick. Psalm 110 is one of David's psalms. And the regular Hebrew interpretation of Psalm 110 was that it was about David. It was about David himself. And he was relaying something the Lord had given to him. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. That sounds like something that you might imagine a king writing about himself. Writing about his own mission, his own rule, and his own reign. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. That's where David sat. <clears throat> in Zion, to rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord is sworn, and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What? If this is a psalm about David, then where in the world does David get off talking about the fact that God's making him a priest after the order of this obscure fellow way back in the Old Testament, Melchizedek? Then he goes on and says, The Lord is at your right hand. He will not, oh, pardon me, he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter the chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, and his head, pardon me, therefore, he will lift up his head. It's a mighty psalm. In fact, you probably know this, but this is the most quoted passage from the Old Testament in the New Testament is Psalm 110. Interesting, right? Not Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22 or some of these other passages, but Psalm 110. Because the psalm points so vividly to Christ and his ministry. Christ is the only one. Jesus is the only one who fits the role of king and priest. 
Now, as we get going into chapter 7 a little further, we're going to find how this plays out. He's going to actually parse it out in great detail. So I'm not going to spend a bunch of time right now going through that. We'll get through that the next couple of weeks, Lord willing. But what I do want to point out is here, this guy Melchizedek shows back up again thousands of years maybe after this story took place with Abram. This guy is brought up by David himself declaring that the Messiah would be a priest forever, not after any Jewish order, but after the order of Melchizedek. It's interesting. So we come to our passage in Hebrews. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abram, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him, Abram apportioned a tenth of everything. So that's, every, that's just reiterating everything that we had just read. So look at verse, the middle of verse 2 there now. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means. Zedek is the title king. Okay? What we do find in the Old Testament is there are a couple of other kings that come from that particular area. Salem happens to be the region where Jerusalem is eventually established by David as the place where he will rule and reign. But his name means king of righteousness. And he's the king of Salem. And if you know that word Salem, it literally means peace. So he's king righteous who rules over the place of peace. That's pretty cool. (laughs) I mean, if nothing else, if that's all it was, that would still be something to note and something to find very interesting. But there's so much more than that because he is foreshadowing Christ in such a way that we see that righteousness and peace go hand in hand. In fact, biblically, I don't think you can have peace Unless it's based on God's righteousness. There is no peace unless it's based upon God's righteousness. You see, if you try to establish your own righteousness, what you will find very quickly is that you don't live up. That you can't do it. And really that was the point of the law, right? It was to be what Galatians says, a schoolmaster to drive us to Christ. In fact, the law, if we want to say, especially in this context, did anything, it made you very unpeaceful, very uncomfortable, very uncertain, very grieved, and very sure that you weren't right. In fact, if it did anything, it really stirred you to the point where you didn't have peace. When you read the Bible, especially that Old Testament, and you try to live according to it, what should happen is not you gain more peace, but that you actually are afflicted. Afflicted to the point where you seek peace somewhere else. That's the point of the law, to disrupt your life, mess with your thoughts and make you realize you can't do it. And if you can't do it, how are you going to get it? 
How are you going to get the very thing, the carrot, if you will, that the law is offering you, which is right, the righteousness of God? You can't do it, so how are you going to get to it? Well, it comes through God's righteousness being imparted to us. And peace only comes through that foundation of God's righteousness. You see, we have no hope of peace unless we have God's righteousness. When I think about peace within the soul, I sometimes think about an interview that happened years and years and years ago. And it was Letterman interviewing Richard Dreyfus, if I remember right. It might have been Johnny Carson actually interviewing Richard Dreyfus. And he was talking to him and asking him what motivated, what, what kept him going, right? That's a question you'd want to ask some movie star who's making big pictures and kind of thing. What drives you, right? And, and he, you could see him visibly change, even with grainy old-timey television. You could still see his countenance change. And he said, I'm looking for peace. I am looking for peace. I don't know if he ever found it. But it only comes through God's righteousness. This fellow here, his life was a foreshadowing of Christ in such a way that even his name, the king of righteousness, and the place he ruled, the place of peace, show us the very need that we have and the only solution for that need that we have, that righteousness be our foundation upon which peace is built. So, beloved, if we don't have peace today, then we need to look to Christ and trust in him more. Verse 3, he's without father or mother, genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of his life. Now, this here is the passage that gets everybody twisted up. And there are a lot of people, in fact, I did for many, many, many years, I really believed that Melchizedek was not just a regular person, but it was actually Jesus in the Old Testament, one of them Christophanies, Okay? Theophanies are when God shows up. Now that happens later on in Abram's life. Remember when God comes down and he's going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah and there's two angels with him and that <clears throat> those angels go on ahead into Sodom and Gomorrah and then Abraham has that back and forth negotiation with God basically saying, hey, if there's 10 righteous people, will you spare the city? Remember that story? There are other places where God showed up. In the book of Judges, he shows up in chapter 14 when the parents of Samson, pardon me, chapter 15, when the parents of Samson are promised by God that they're going to have a son, the angel of the Lord comes and meets with them and tells them that. And when he flies up in a pillar of fire in front of them, they break and are like, oh my gosh, we just saw God. And Samson's dad thinks he's going to die. And Samson's mom says, no, nah, I think if he wanted to kill us, he would have just done it. <laughs> so it's not, it is rare in the Bible that God just shows up in the Old Testament. But it's not so uncommon that we only have one or two passages that that happens. And so because of that, for many years, because I was taught this, frankly, that this person in the book of Genesis was Jesus Christ in a theophany foreshadowing the work that he was going to do. 
Now, right now I don't think that. And, and you know what? It's not a point where I would quibble at all. If somebody really wanted to think that, that's fine. And you know what? I still kind of, I think that's cool. <laughs> I, I wish I could, like, latch on to that, but, you know, I just can't anymore. But, you know, if, if that's where you're at or what you've been taught, then, then that's great. I'm certainly, you know, it's, it's by no means any sticking point and shouldn't be with any of us. But here's why I don't think that anymore, because it says, but resembling the Son of God, he continues forever as a priest. Pardon me, he continues a priest forever. Here it's interesting that the author of Hebrews find much, if not more, in what's not said in Genesis than what's actually said. Because Genesis didn't, there was no place there for Genesis to talk about Melchizedek's genealogy, right? Genealogies are common in the Old Testament. But here this guy shows up, gives him bread and wine, blesses him and moves on. And that's like, okay, that's just kind of par for the course with the Old Testament. People show up, say things, do things, and then don't show up again. Why is he so different? Why does the author find so, so much different here? And he reads into the silence, which we all know is not wise to do. <laughs> That's not good biblical practice in exegesis. But thank goodness we have an apostolic example, or pardon me, we have apostolic authority for doing that here. So we can't say it's wrong. I just am certainly not going to make a habit of doing that myself. But he does, and he says that... He is taking this Melchizedek figure and he's pointing us to Christ by using this Melchizedek figure by saying he didn't have a father or mother. He didn't have a recorded beginning of days or end of life. He continues forever as a priest because we never see his death. That's like Jesus. So he's taking this guy Melchizedek that we know the Old Testament says has a priesthood and he functions as a king and those together we're going to find in the Messiah and we find Jesus as the Messiah so therefore we find that he is the only one that fits the bill for this high priesthood being a priest after this order of Melchizedek. This is why the author of Hebrews elevates in such a way because what he's going to do for the next three chapters is he's going to hammer on how Jesus is a better high priest. And we need that. And the Hebrews needed that. They were struggling, right? They were flirting with going back. And what would they have gone back to? A priesthood. A high priesthood that was sacrificing animals, trying to atone for sins that way. And his point for the next many chapters is like, there's no more priesthood. There's nothing good there. Jesus is a greater king and a greater priest. You go back to that, you have nothing. And so he's taking the time here to show us how him being a king and him being a priest is so much massively greater than the Levitical priesthood. And he's doing it by taking this guy who was a guy, I think, in the Old Testament and saying he was a foreshadowing that David even picks up on in Psalm 110 and then comes into the New Testament and we see the full glory of his foreshadowing in the person of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4. See <laughs> how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of all the spoils? The writer of Hebrews thinks he's just a man too. 
The writer of Hebrews doesn't see him as a Christophany. But he does see him as a great man. In fact, he sees him look down at verse 7, the very end there. The inferior is blessed by the superior. The writer of Hebrews sees Melchizedek as a greater man than even Abraham. He's a great man. He's a superior man even to Abraham. And the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. Look what a great man this man was. Abraham loved God. There's no doubt. Abraham had faith and confidence in God. There is no doubt. And so when Abraham comes and in his love and faith and confidence in God honors and receives a blessing from this man, we know that's a great man. That's the argument that the writer of Hebrews is putting forward here. And now he begins his argument about why the Levitical priesthood is inferior, lesser in quality to the priesthood of Melchizedek. In verse 5, the descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. Now if you want to go back and look up, look up Numbers chapter 18, and there you're going to find the law given where these Levitical priests, these after the tribe of Levi, are given the right to take tithes from all of the other Israelites. Okay, It's in Leviticus 18. It was reinstituted in Nehemiah, just in case you're wondering, if you really want extra credit and you want to go read Nehemiah 10, or read the whole book if you want. It's not that long. You can get through it this evening. But they were given in the law the ability and authority to take tithes from their brothers. But this man, Melchizedek, verse 6, who doesn't have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Abraham was given the great covenant in the Old Testament. I think we all would agree. I think anyone who's covenantal would agree. The great covenant of the Old Testament is in chapter 12 of the book of Genesis with Abram, right? The New Testament points back to Abram as the father of faith routinely, with enough authority that I think we can safely say that's the great covenant. And every other covenant was an extension, an expanding, a flower, a blossoming, if you will, of the covenant given to Abraham. So this man who received the great covenant in the Old Testament blesses, or pardon me, is blessed by this king. It's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In one case, the tithes are received by mortal men, but the other case, one by one whom it is testified that he lives. What he's saying there is that in one case, the tribe of Levi received tithes from the people who live. But in the other case, there's no record of his death. There's no record of his death, so he, in a sense, continues to live. And again, it's pointing forward to Christ and his resurrection. So let's finish up here. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. 
Let me illustrate this. My kids have not always existed. Right, kids? (laughs) They haven't always existed. There was a time where they didn't. Yet, I paid tithes to the church before they existed. So in a sense, they paid tithes through me because they had not yet been born. There's a heritage, there's a legacy there, if you will. But you see, the argument is very strong and very weighty, that if Abraham was the great one who received the covenant and all the promises, therefore anyone who came from him was inferior to him, and he paid tithes to this guy who was both a king and a priest, then he clearly is greater than Abram. And whatever it was that he did in terms of his foreshadowing pointed forward to something that was greater than Abram himself as well. Right? So in every way, Melchizedek stands for us as a type of something and someone greater than Melchizedek, namely Jesus Christ himself. So that's where we end the sermon here tonight. We find ourselves kind of in the middle of an introduction section, but this kind of background is helpful for us, not just for history's sake, not just getting the background, but we can see now in a greater way why this particular character is so important and why Jesus is so much greater. We could almost stop right here and go, okay, we don't need to go on any further, but of course the writer of Hebrews does because... He wants them to understand that there's nothing else for them to go to. Jesus is our great king and our great high priest. He's our sovereign ruler and our glorious savior. And we're so thankful for that. Amen. Amen. Lord, we love you for this wonderful, gracious salvation that you've provided for us through Jesus Christ, your son. Melchizedek pointed us forward to him and foreshadowed him. And Lord, we... Thank you for showing us how great that you are, even in the midst of the Old Testament there, pointing us forward to your son so that we could see in unescapable terms that you are greater and you are the best, Lord, and that we have nowhere else to go but to you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.